grace and peace of Christ be with you. And also with you. Let's turn and greet one another. We welcome you to Laguna Presbyterian Church, especially those of you who are visiting with us today. We are just delighted that you're here with us. And you will see on each one of the aisles near the center aisle, each one of the pews near the center aisle, there's a friendship pad. It's a black folder. And we'd love to have you take it and fill it out and let us know that you're here today and then pass it down the road so other people can do that too. The connections are inside of your bulletin. Today is Scout Sunday, and you will hear more about that in a moment. Many of those scouts who will be with us in the second service, they are, they're, they're only slightly represented. They're represented by about two people in this service, but there will be quite a few of them in second service, and you may see them in between the services out on the patio. Today is the last chance to donate for school backpacks for fire victims. That will be probably in Tankersley Hall. Probably all of the carts are moved in there because of the possibility of rain. This Tuesday is our book talk at 4 o'clock. We're discussing the book Bear Town, and anyone who has read the book is invited to join us. It's not a closed group. It's anybody who would like to come. We're starting a new group for teens on Wednesday afternoons. It is actually a drop-in kind of a time. Three, six teens, it's called. And so it's for any teens in the community. They don't have to be connected to the church. Drop in time down here in the lower level. This Saturday evening, uh, the two Maini partners will be showing a film, Beautifully Broken. It is about the Rwanda genocide. And one of the people featured in the film, uh, whose story the film is, will be here with us um, hosting that. Ibrahim will be here from Rwanda. Next Sunday is Parish Sunday, which means that after each service, our deacons are hosting you over in Tankersley Hall to an abundance of food. If you are a member of the church, you, are, you belong to a parish, and you are, we hope you will go to the table that's assigned to your parish and your deacon that is assigned to your area and so that you can meet them and they can meet you. Many of them are new this year, but if you're not a member, you just get to graze all of the tables. So we... <laughs> If you're not a member yet, we want to be sure that you go to Parish Sunday and meet lots of people. It will be a wonderful morning over there. Our third Friday group invites you to join them later in the month for their Academy Awards night. We are going to be featuring three players from the side street strutters at Disneyland, and they will be playing old show tunes and old movie tunes. It's a potluck, and you can sign up for that out in the Tankersley Hall. And women's retreat, there's only one more week to sign up for our retreat, which is Won't You Be My Neighbor? Unexpected Kindness. So you need to do that online. That's the way to sign up for that. Our cat survey has been sent out. If you uh, are ha have any questions about it, there are answers inside of our connections. If you did not get the link, it tells you what you can do about that. There are just two more weeks to fill that out. And the flowers this morning are marking what would be the 100th anniversary of the birth of Rolf Jensen. Rolf was one of our scout leaders many years ago, and much of his family is still involved in scouts and will be here with us in the second service. And I'd like to introduce Tom Fay, who is from our scout pack and scout troop. Thank you, Kathy. Today is Scout Sunday when we celebrate the founding of scouting, which was 109 years ago this week. And it's when we give thanks to our charter organization. So thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Gareth. Thank you, all of you, for supporting Scouts. We've had a very active year, per usual. Uh, two thriving units. We've got the Pac-35 Cub Scouts and what we now call Scouts BSA Troop 35, which is composed of both boy troop and a girl troop. So this is new. They announced it about a year ago. We are creating history here at Laguna Press Church with 10 girls in the girl troop, some of which will be here at 10 o'clock. And uh, the idea is to provide the same opportunities and experiences that the Boy Scouts have had for so many years to girls. Many of these girls participate already in family campouts at both the PAC level, the PAC being the Cub Scouts in first through fifth grade, and the troop level, the sixth through 12th graders. Last year, we had 54 Cub Scouts well, we currently have 54 Cub Scouts. They enrolled last year. And we've got 32 Boy Scouts. We've got four new Eagles. We've got nine people bridging from the pack to the troop on Patriots Day Parade Day, which is our tradition. 
And to highlight the importance of the church and family, I want to share something with you. It's a little bit repetitive if you've poured through the annual report, but if you haven't, in 2018, we had four new Eagle Scouts. The family members involved in scouting underscore what can help success. Caleb Lindsay, new Eagle, is the grandson of patrol advisor Michael Lindsay, who is active in the troop even though his son is eagled out. Stephen Jensen, the grandson of Rolf Jensen, just got his eagle. Joe Hovenessian is the son of assistant scoutmaster John Hovenessian. He got his eagle. Logan Leeds is the son of current scoutmaster Clay Leeds, and he got his eagle. And one thing we have a very good record for here at the church is the percentage of eagles that we get through the troop providing opportunities. Um, a very quick story I'll share in a little bit more detail at the 10 o'clock hour. One of the Cub Scouts, when I was Cub Scouts for, uh, Cub Master for nine years, came in as a second grader, uh, was medicated with ADHD situations, and is now a private first-class Marine. Uh, one year after graduating high school and getting a medical waiver accomplished in that one-year period. If you're an Eagle, you enter as a private first class. If you're not, you enter as a private. So he pre-advanced his rank by going through the program here. If anybody has any questions on how to get involved, your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, uh, you can see me at any time. And once again, thank you, Laguna Presbyterian, for your support of scouting. Let us pray. O oh, gracious God, you do invite us to mount up with wings as eagles and to soar in your presence. And you are the wind, the Holy Spirit beneath our wings. And so lift us up today as we worship you. May we worship you in spirit and in truth that it might transform us to become more like Jesus Christ, in whose name we gather. Amen. Amen. Please join me for our call to worship. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of honor and majesty is His work and his righteousness endures forever. He has gained renown by his wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Let us stand and worship our living God. Now my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, full of God and man the Son, Thee will I cherish, Thee will I honor, Thou my soul's
Let the weak say, I am strong. And let the poor say, I am rich. Let's sing that together. Let the weak say, I'm strong. Let the It's what the Lord has done in me. Let's sing that one more time. Let the weak say I'm strong. Let the poor say I am rich. Let the blind say I can see. It's what the Lord has done in me. Thank you. 
And so we come to the Lord and tell him the truth about ourselves. Let us pray responsively. Lord, your work says love is patient and kind. But we, we confess, confess at, at times, times we are, are impatient, impatient and, and unkind. unkind. Your word tells us that love does not envy, that it does not boast, and that it is not proud. But, but we, we are, are often, often envious. envious. We, we are, are boastful and proud. Your word says that love is not rude and that it is not self-seeking. But we, we are, are often inconsiderate of those around us and walk past those in need. Your word tells us that love is not easily angered and that it keeps no record of wrongs. But we are easily angered and quick to keep score when we have been wronged. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Help us, Lord, follow in your way to love the way you love. And so we bring you the silent confessions of our hearts. For we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. My friends, hear the good news. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Know that we are loved. Know that we are forgiven and be at peace. Thanks be to God. Amen. Last week, Kathy preached the first part of this text, and that was the gracious part. I get to preach the mean part. When I first read the whole chapter of Luke, I thought I may preach a sermon on the whole chapter with this title, Devils, Demons, and Dives. As I read and review this text, you might see what we mean. The first part of chapter 4 of Luke is about Jesus being tempted by the devil and the devil inviting Jesus to take a dive. But God will help him and save him. Then Jesus goes to Nazareth and he preaches his sermon, reads the scripture from Isaiah, what you heard last week, and then he confronts the town of Nazareth, his hometown, and they get so angry they want to kill him. They want to throw him off the cliff. They want Jesus to take a dive. And then, after all that is done, he goes off to Capernaum, where he heals a lot of people and casts demons out of others. And the demons are constantly throwing people down when they possess others. The devil makes people take dives. 
to go down. Now, in that context, we look at the text that we read today, which is the second part of Jesus' reading and sermon, beginning with verse 21. Jesus began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth, and they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard that you did in Capernaum. And Jesus said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up and for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of these except to a widow in Zarephath and Sidon, which is Gentile turf. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, that despicable Gentile general. You notice I've added a few terms. <laughs> when they heard this, all the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The word of the Lord. In this passage, there are eight quotations from the Old Testament. Luke is sending a very clear signal that the Bible is important to how Jesus did his ministry. Jesus took the Bible seriously. I grew up in a family with a father who taught the Bible in classes, in the context of the church. He was often in some difficult places because sometimes what he said in the Bible class was the exact opposite of what the preacher said in the sermon. That created some tension. But my dad would come home and he would say to us, as we gathered around the lunch table following worship, now let's see if what the preacher said is what the Bible really says. And we would read the text again, and we would do a little analysis of the sermon in light of the Bible. And what we discovered many times was, was there was a disconnect between the text and the preacher's words. Now I say all that to say my dad never wanted me to become a preacher. Because he didn't trust preachers, he felt preachers misused the Bible. Whoa, there's a statement. And so in a sense, he kind of made me swear a covenant Okay, you're bound and determined to become a preacher, but please, never misuse the Bible. Okay, Dad, I agree. All Scripture, according to the Bible itself and the New Testament, is inspired by God. It's worthy of focusing and honing our lives for better. Jesus lived in the time when Scripture was taken very seriously for all people. It was the time of the synagogue. It was the time, in a sense, of the Reformation, where the people of God gathered in small groups in their communities, and they read the Bible together, and they talked about the Bible, and they listened to the rabbis' interpretation of the Bible. And we do so in this Reformed tradition. We take the Bible very seriously. We believe that God speaks through Scripture and that Scripture speaks to the nature and the purpose of God. And so it is that we practice synagogue in our own 
church practices. We gather for Bible studies, and together we read the text and we discuss it. And sometimes we even listen to what the preacher says. Jesus quotes the Bible several times here, but you please note the devil also quotes the Bible. So Luke is trying to send a signal here. Just because a person quotes the Bible doesn't mean they speak on behalf of God. Well, that puts you in a really difficult place. How do you know when a person's quoting the Bible for the wrong reasons and a person's quoting the Bible for the right reasons? Even the demons recognized that Jesus was Messiah, and Nazareth people didn't recognize that. So actually, the devil and the demons come out looking pretty good in these texts. And Nazareth comes out looking like idiots. The Nazareth group is like the church of our day. They believed they knew the Bible, but they missed the point. Now let me say that again. They believed they knew the Bible, but they missed the point. Jesus repeats that over and over and over again to the leaders of his day and says, you do know the scriptures, but you don't know what that means. And so this is a constant accountability to me as a leader of the faith and a preacher to make sure I understand what the scripture is trying to say. Let me say that I make mistakes. I'm flawed. God help me when I make mistakes to help me see, to turn them into the right way. Jesus interprets passages from Deuteronomy, from 1 and 2 Kings, and from Isaiah 61 and 58. Jesus doesn't just quote the Bible, Jesus quotes popular cliches and proverbs. He understands the marketing patterns of his day. He probably watched the Super Bowl ads of his time. Physician, cure yourself, and a prophet's without honor in his own hometown are not biblical statements. They are popular, cliched statements that are generally understood and embraced in his time. Jesus preaches out of both. He preaches out of Scripture, and he preaches out of popular understanding of life. Beware of people who say, only Scripture counts, don't pay any heedance to the culture and those crazy statements that come out of it. Sometimes that culture is more in touch with reality than we are. There are those who would say that if you take Scripture seriously, that every line of the Bible is of equal importance. Now, I'm going to say something radical here. Bunk. Every line of the Bible isn't of equal importance. There are some passages that are marvelously important, and there are many passages that are of secondary importance. And you say, well, how do you know that? When I went to seminary, my very first class in Old Testament theology was with David Allen Hubbard, a person who's passed on now. But his opening statement to us in Old Testament interpretation was, In our Reformed tradition, if you want to know what it means, look at the life of Jesus. Jesus interprets all of Scripture. Jesus is the living Word that interprets the written Word. So if we have a question about what a passage means, we look at Jesus. We look at His life, His works. We look at His words and His deeds but also we look at how we interpreted the Bible. When Jesus is asked the question about what's the most important commandment, he doesn't start listing all the commandments and statutes and ordinances of Leviticus. He would have probably bored the people to death. Uh, I did try to think about doing that today. (laughs) No, he goes to the main passage in Leviticus the main passage in Deuteronomy, love God with all your heart, Deuteronomy, and love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus. Jesus rose to the big 
passages of the Bible that defined everything else. If you are around people that say all Scripture is to be weighed equally, get nervous around those people because they are like Pharisees. They will pick you to death with stuff that isn't right in your life. Jesus never did that. He always maintained the big picture, the overview, the great statements of the nature of God. Yes, all Scripture is inspired. But we know what is important because there are some scriptures that just stand out as the major statements of the Bible and they are repeated over and over and over again. For example, you will find this passage in in different ways stated throughout scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That passage from Exodus and from Numbers is a very important statement about God that the prophets and the psalmists picked up and used over and over and over again. So you want to know about God? Let me say it again. This is who God is. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Is there anything in there about vengeance and obnoxiousness and wrath and punishment? The only thing that's attached to that is a phrase that's added at the end in Deuteronomy that the sins of the people will live out to the fourth generation of their children because they don't follow a God who's gracious and kind and merciful and abounding in love. You know those passages, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This 1 Corinthians 13 passage that we read today, love is patient and kind. It's not irritable. And love is sustained for eternity above all other patterns. In the letters of John, God is love. You cannot find a passage that says God is judgment and God will send you to hell. That's why we Presbyterians are are not big on hell. We are big on heaven and eternal life. Now, what do you do about judgment? There is a judgment. There are people that don't get it right. And by the way, in in the time of Jesus, those were mostly the people of, of the church of Jesus' day. He has the harshest words to say for religious leaders. Me. I better be careful. Because I can have so much energy around my own opinions about what the Bible means that I miss the point completely. One of my favorite composers, probably my most favorite composer, is Felix Mendelssohn. And his probably his greatest work is the oratorio Elijah. If you listen to the beginning of the oratorial Elijah, you get a profound theological statement that Jesus would have engaged and loved. Elijah comes out before any overture, before anything is said, and basically says, As the God, the Lord of Israel, liveth before whom I stand, there shall be no dew or rain these years, but according to my word. And there wasn't any rain. Well, aren't we thankful that Elijah is not standing in our midst today? We're getting some rain. Well, why does Elijah say that? Because it means hell for Israel. It means Israel is going to really suffer for a long period of time. And so Middleson quickly goes into the suffering piece. They, they notice, Lord, help, wilt thou destroy us? The chorus comes out and says, Now that the harvest over, the summer days are gone, and yet no power comes to help us. Will then the Lord be no more God in Zion? They go on to say, The deeps afford no water, the rivers are exhausted, the suckling's tongue is cleaving for thirst to his mouth. That's the baby. The infant children are asked for bread, and there's no one that breaks bread for them. And then they pray, Lord, bow your ear to our prayer. Because we're spreading our hands out for aid and nothing of aid that is coming. Lord, where in the hell are you? 
and God doesn't show up for three and a half years. And then suddenly Obadiah appears and sings these wonderful tenor recitatives and arias. And you'll notice the theme that Mendelssohn picks up. Ye people, rend your hearts and not your garments, for your transgressions, even as Elijah has sealed the heavens through the word of God. I therefore say to you, forsake your idols, return to God, for God is slow to anger and merciful and kind and gracious and repents of evil. Mendelssohn wanted to communicate very clearly in Elijah that Elijah's primary ministry was to get people to tend to the reality of God. That's what Scripture wants to call us to, is who is God really? Because Israel had a tendency to reduce God to vengeance and vindication and to make God a utensil for their own use. And sometimes in the church we do the same, misusing the Bible. We as Presbyterians say, well, you see, God is sovereign. God's in charge of everything. But we Presbyterians have our opinions and we must be right. No, actually, we are always deferring to the sovereignty of God and what God really says. And so we approach all of Scripture with humility, even in our interpretation, because we could be wrong. You see, every one of us that's a sinner could be wrong. And for any of us to say, well, I have the high ground with God. I'm like a prophet. I can tell who's going to hell and who isn't. I say bunk. I might say some other things, but not in public. We preachers and theologians, those of us who are in structured denominations and high-flying congregations, are tempted to think we own the Scriptures. That was the same temptation Israel had. Oh, we have the Torah. We study the Torah every day, and it's particularly on, on Sabbath. And Jesus comes to Nazareth to say, but you got it wrong. You got it wrong. We need to be careful about our assumptions. How would you like your preacher to come into this church and to do what Jesus did? To quote this wonderful passage of grace and mercy from Isaiah, and then to say to people, but you people aren't doing it that way. You people have gotten it wrong. You people have lost touch with reality. You people are doing the devil's work. How long are you going to keep that preacher? Huh. Just so you know, I do have my resume all ready to go. I've been wanting to preach this sermon my entire life. <laughs> Not because I want everybody to be in pain, because I want it to be the wake-up call for us that it was for the Nazareth village. You see, Nazareth hated Gentiles. Nazareth was one of those little villages that had decided that the people on the outside who are not really a part of us have got to go. You can't really trust those Gentiles over in Capernaum and Cana, over on the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. You can't trust those Romans and Greeks. In time of Jesus, it was, probably, it was probable that Jesus was a stonecutter and a mason. He'd learned it from his father, and they traveled 20 miles to build a great Greek city. It was brand new. And so those poor Nazareth people were constantly serving the wealthy, of the Roman and Greek heritage. So they wanted to get rid of them. If God is really Messiah, Messiah will come and rid us of the Greeks and the Romans. And Jesus is here to say, no, not true. In fact, Luke has him quoting Isaiah 61, and what he leaves out of Isaiah 61, after he talks about liberty to the captives and the good news to the poor, Luke has Jesus leave out this little statement that says this, and the day of vengeance of our Lord. Isn't that interesting? Because they would have latched onto that vengeance statement and said, yeah, Jesus, preach it. 
we're going to get rid of those Romans. We're going to get rid of those foreigners. We're going to get rid of those people we don't like. We're going to get rid of the people who don't fit our agenda. We're going to get rid of anybody that we don't think really is good enough for God. And Jesus says, you missed the point. And then he goes on to talk about Elijah and Elisha. Two prophets that were sent to Israel to bring good news to the, to the people of Israel. And when things were tough, God sends them out of town to the Gentiles. The people that are dying of starvation, Elijah doesn't help them in Israel. The people who are suffering from leprosy, Elisha doesn't help them. He's sent off to the general of the Syrian army. What is God thinking? It would be the equivalent today of a preacher being sent off to work with the Muslims and not working with the church. It would be the equivalent today of people who don't fit our agenda and the prophets of God spending more time caring about them than he cares for the church. The scripture is clear. We are called to be like God and God gives grace to us so that we might pour out grace upon those that don't fit our agenda. Think of somebody in your life, think of some group of people in your life that just don't fit your agenda. If you're a Republican, I'm sure there's some Democrats on that list. If you are an evangelical Christian, I'm, I'm sure that there are some mainline Presbyterians that are on your list. If you are a Christian at all, I'm sure there are Hindus and Muslims on your list. And what Jesus is trying to say to the Nazareth church and to the Nazareth people is, those are all the people God loves. Go out and touch their lives for good, for the gospel. We don't get what we want. We can't control God. We can't make Scripture our own. Scripture belongs to all people in all places. God is a God for all people in all places. It isn't just God for Christians. We are called to be the representatives like Jesus of taking God in word and action and interpretation to all the people that don't fit around us. The Apostle Paul was first known as Saul in the book of Acts. Saul was a good Jewish man. He was passionate and militant about the Jewish agenda to the extent that he believed the church was full of heretics. And he persecuted the church. He killed Christians. And Jesus stops him on the way to Damascus and says, no, why are you beating up on the people I love? Stop it. And so Saul becomes Paul and goes out and builds Gentile churches around the world, much to the chagrin of the existing church of his day. Wars have been fought over interpretation of the Bible. There's the littlest book in the New Testament called Philemon. That little book was the source of a lot of passionate, angry disagreement in the Civil War. It's a book about a slave owner, Philemon, and the Apostle Paul saying to Philemon, I want you to do something that may be hard to do. The Southern Church said the hard thing to do was accept back a slave who had run away and forgive that slave for absconding with goodies and coming back, the northern church said, no, you've missed the point. It's about Paul inviting Philemon to treat Onesimus as an equal, as a brother in Christ. And the Civil War is fought over the biblical disagreement of interpretation. Today, we still argue about Ephesians 5. You know that passage that you hear at some weddings and it causes some of us to become very nervous? Wives, be subject to your husbands. Wives, 
Oh, by the way, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, that's easy to do, right? We miss the next part of it, which says, and he laid down his life for the church. Husbands, love your wives to the point that you want them to succeed so well you're willing to die for their success. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, we love to just use the scripture for our purposes. And we miss the point, the overarching point when the whole passage begins. Be subject to one another. Be submissive. Serve one another. And that's the great statement of Jesus. He came as the chief servant. Well, I've been preaching too much. Let me just end this sermon with this final statement. We need to interpret the Bible the way Jesus interprets the Bible. We need to figure out Jesus' hermeneutic. What does hermeneutic mean? Value of interpretation. And how did Jesus value the Bible? He looked at the big picture stuff and saw the little stuff in light of the big picture. We need to continually interpret Scripture through the pattern of Jesus. Now, my objective of this sermon is to upset almost everybody in some way, but also to say, here's the really good news. We have a God who's gracious and kind, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. So why is it we Americans are getting so angry all the time? And we say we worship God, and we're, we're angry. I don't know what God you're worshiping if you spend your entire life angry but it isn't the God of the Bible. So as we go today, let us remember that we are called to serve the living God who's reflected and revealed in Scripture, and that God is like Jesus. Not primarily built in vengeance, but in grace and mercy and love, slow to anger, abounding, abounding in this wonderful sense of compassion and goodness for all humanity. And so we are called to treasure every human being we engage around us, for that's what God does. Or we can get really angry and try to do away from, with them. It's our choice. Let us pray. Oh, Lord. May you help us interpret the Bible well, that your goodness and mercy and love might be shared with all humanity. And it is through Jesus Christ that we offer ourselves. Amen. This morning we affirm our faith together by the in the words of the brief statement of faith that is a part of our book of confessions. Let us stand. In life and in death, we belong to God. Through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, we trust in the one triune God, the Holy One of Israel, whom alone we worship and serve. We trust in Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God. Jesus proclaimed the reign of God, preaching good news to the poor, and release to the captives, teaching by word and deed, and blessing the children, healing the sick, and binding up the brokenhearted, eating with outcasts, forgiving sinners, and calling all to repent and believe the gospel. We trust in God, the Holy Spirit, everywhere the giver and renewer of life. In a broken and fearful world, the Spirit gives us courage to pray without ceasing, to witness among all peoples to Christ as Lord and Savior, to unmask idolatries in church and culture, to hear the voices of peoples long silenced, and to work with others for justice, freedom, and peace. Would you please be seated? Let us pray together. O God, our Father, the giver of life, we pray for your church throughout the world. 
sanctify its life, renew its worship, and empower its witness and restore its unity. Renew in your whole church the passionate desire for the coming of your kingdom, which unites all Christians in one mission to the world, that we would all grow up together into him who is our head, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Word of life, we give you thanks for feeding our bodies, but more importantly, feeding our souls with your word, filling our hunger and quenching our true thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. For the merciful, for they will see God. And so we pray this week that you will continue to open up our eyes, O Lord, to the needs around us, and by your Holy Spirit move us when we can make a difference for your namesake. We pray now the prayer that you gave us, and we lift this up to you in your name. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward as we give of our tithes and Well, there is a song that is a song to the church, a wake-up call to the church, and this is one of them, Justice Will Roll Down. Justice in the world where the servant is the king, where an oppression is over, and the slave will be set free. next door She who has been loved much has so much to give Mercy is the fragrance of the broken Justice will roll down Oh justice will roll down From high above
Let's pray. Almighty God, out of the abundance of your love, we offer these gifts to you now. We pray that you would accept them to further the teaching and loving kindness of our great God and Savior, so that all may find in him the abundant life he so richly promised. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, which is Christ, and we're going to sing it to the tune of Ode to Joy. At the end of the service, we invite you to come forward for prayer. We have two prayer ministers that will be standing right over here, and they'd love to pray with you and for you. And so we ask you to consider going today as Jesus would go out into the world to discern the great truths of Scripture, of God's great abundant kindness and love, and to share that in word and action and interpretation with the people around you, that they might see Jesus as the living Son of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, in whose name and nature you go. Amen.